Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. All right, Nathan, a little bit of a, a drum roll here, please, for your, uh, for your debut on the podcast. Are you ready? I am. All right, let's do it. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein, and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. My guest today is, well, it's me. But rather than interview myself, my co-portfolio manager, Nathan Faber, joins the podcast to take the reins. In this episode, we talk all things rebalanced timing luck. It's been an obsession of mine for years and something we believe to be a dramatically misunderstood and outright ignored source of risk in portfolios everywhere. We discuss how we first came across the topic, some recent research into it, important implications for the industry at large, and how we can try to solve for it. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay. Well, Nathan Faber, welcome to the podcast, your first debut on the show. Your portfolio manager here at Newfound was hoping before we flipped it and you kicked it off and started asking me questions. Maybe you could go ahead and give a little background for the folks listening in. Yeah, thank you, Corey. And thanks for having me on as the interviewer today. My background is I started in chemical engineering. I worked for a couple of years doing oil and gas design and translated from modeling molecules to modeling dollars in finance. So I've been with Newfound for about six years now and enjoying the role as portfolio manager. Well, we love having you here. You actually ended up going to the same graduate program I did out of Carnegie Mellon, getting that degree in computational finance, which I know we both love that program. I laugh because I spent the entire time working and you spent the entire time flipping a house and I think still ended up with a better GPA than I did. So jokes on you though, because I take all the good credit for your hard work here. But again, love having you here and excited to do this podcast because I know this is a topic you and I spend a lot of time researching, talking about writing about, I think a lot of people think maybe we're a little bit obsessed with it, but this idea of timing luck really is something that can be massively impactful. So excited to chat about it a bit today and fun for me to have you turn around and ask me some questions. So without further ado, I'll step back from the host seat and let you take over. Okay. Well, yes. Thankful that my first time on the podcast is running the podcast. So let's start with a simple question as we get into timing luck. What is rebalance timing luck? So really, simply put, the idea of rebalance timing luck is the impact on portfolio returns that can happen 
based upon when you rebalance a portfolio. So in a lot of ways, it's sort of the unintentional impact of market timing that occurs based on the opportunities that are available in the market at the point of rebalance. This idea is really the most obvious in strategies that run some sort of systematic rebalance process. They rebalance every quarter, every month, semi-annually or something like that, which seems like a narrow subset until we consider it really covers just about every single smart beta product out there, as well as a lot of the really common benchmarks that investors are measured against. Yeah, I think that's a really good introduction to what it is. But if we look at where you are now with writing all this research and having a paper published on it, but we take a step back a few years to when you first started exploring this topic, how did it really show up on your radar initially? If we go back a couple of years, probably around 2012, 2011, we were actually trying to solve an entirely different problem when this came up on our radar. The problem we were looking at was this idea that there are certain quantitative signals that might have a lot of long-term efficacy in their predictive and forecasting power. So they provide some sort of insight into things several quarters out, several years out, but in the short term provide almost no information. So I, I think a really obvious, simple example here is something like the Schiller Cape, where you can look at, or the inverse of Schiller earnings yield, look at that earnings yield and use it to forecast expected market returns with a decent degree of accuracy, but only if those returns are annualized over the subsequent five, 10 year period. Really not that useful for forecasting one year returns. So the question becomes how do you build a portfolio if you know your signal has efficacy for forecasting over a 10 year period or a longer term period, but is very noisy in the short term? Well, if you constantly change your portfolio based upon short term signal changes, you're reacting to a lot of market noise. On the other hand, if you just sort of set your portfolio today, close your eyes and don't react for another 10 years, you're foregoing a lot of information along the way. So the whole idea for us was, well, how do we balance this idea of we know we want a long holding period for this signal to work, but there's actually more signal in the longer we hold some of these ideas, hold this portfolio as being formed, but we also want to adapt to information along the way. And so in doing a lot of research there, for us, this idea of overlapping portfolios came up naturally, that what we might do is form a bunch of different portfolios and hold them each for the right amount of time, but construct them at different points in time. Very much related to what PE firms do, actually, when we think about sort of market cycle risk. Excuse me, not PE firms, but people who are allocating to PE. So when you allocate to less liquid asset classes like VC or PE, you're very subject to what's going on in the market cycle at a given time. So you might allocate today and not expect to see your money for seven to 10 years when you get it back. Well, how do you deal with the fact that you might be allocating at a market peak or at a time when there's not a, good, a lot of good opportunities? Well, the way people deal with that is simply to allocate a little bit of their capital this year. And then next year, allocate a little bit of their capital. And the year after that, and they sort of create this rotating portfolio that rotates every seven to 10 years as that money comes back and they smooth out that sort of market cycle luck. We adopted an identical philosophy and approach. And what we found 
was that when we isolated each of those individual portfolios and looked at their performance, even though each portfolio was using the exact same process to be constructed, the performance was really meaningfully different. And that performance was due only to when they were being rebalanced. And so this idea of rebalanced timing luck ended up on our radar as a big influencer of potential returns. When you first discovered it, had you found much prior literature on it? Had other people been exploring this concept, writing blogs about it, writing papers about it, or was this a new concept? Obviously, you mentioned PE, so it wasn't entirely new, but applied to portfolios and tactical strategies. I think we wrote about it for four years or so before I was able to actually find any other literature on it. But actually, the first literature I did find was by Pim Van Fleet and a couple other researchers at Robico who wrote a piece back in early 2010. It's been subsequently revised, but I think the initial release was back in March 2010. And the piece was called Fundamental Indexation, Rebalancing Assumptions and Performance. And what they did in that piece is they actually replicated an annually rebalanced fundamental index. So basically taking the methodology applied by research affiliates at the time and their fundamental index process and reconstructing it. And then what they did is because that at the time it was annually rebalanced, they created four separate versions where that annual rebalance happened at different quarter ends and they compared the performance. And so what they found really dramatically in 2009 was that if that annual rebalance happened in March, it actually ended up outperforming a market cap weighted index by 10%. But if that annual rebalance occurred in September, it actually underperformed the market cap benchmark in 2009. So they very much highlighted that. Again, identical process using this fundamental indexing concept, but the choice of rebalancing annually in March versus rebalancing annually in September led to a huge dispersion in potential returns one dramatically outperforming the index and one underperforming the index. And so they ended up actually proposing an identical solution to what we had discovered, which was this idea of overlapping portfolios, basically just dividing your capital and allocating it equally to the same strategy that's rebalanced at different points in time. And what's interesting is research affiliates actually went on to implement this idea. I think they call it staggered rebalancing is what they write about, but they actually use this exact concept in terms of how they manage their portfolios. So there was some literature on it. That's actually one of the only other pieces I've been able to find that talks about this. Research Affiliates has written a few white papers, but nothing really published in the journals. I'd be very curious to see if anyone else has covered this and, or if it's this idea again has been covered for less liquid securities, but it doesn't seem to be one that's on people's radar. That's very interesting. I remember one of the first articles we had written about it. We looked at what we called vintages. And we used a term for wine connoisseurs called oenophiles. And that was the first time I had learned it. So you do learn something new every day, I guess. But with this, I can't believe how huge that impact is when you look at just six month difference for the same strategy on the rebalance date. What would you say is the general impact of this for other strategies? And why should we really care about it? Well, I think to your point, the impact seems like it can be really large, but I think we're really only aware of the impact if we construct all these parallel worlds. So the impact doesn't really show up in, in risk metrics like volatility. 
it shows up in this idea of potential returns or almost a dispersion of returns you could have achieved depending upon the rebalance state. So for example, if research affiliates had run their process and happened to rebalance their portfolio every March, they would have looked like heroes in 2009. If they happened to rebalance it in September, they would have underperformed. And that's a very, very big difference, obviously, for an asset manager as well as investors. But unless you actually go through the process of constructing the alternatives, you're not really necessarily even aware that the alternatives are out there. Again, this isn't a topic that's frequently discussed. Managers don't normally offer different rebalance date options of their strategy. So unless you go through and do the legwork yourself of doing all the calculations, replicating their process, you might not even be aware of the dispersion that occurred. So you know, at the end of the day, what's interesting to me is this dispersion can be both good or bad luck. You could happen to pick the rebalance date where you end up underperforming, or you could happen to pick the rebalance date that you outperform. But ultimately, I think the reason we care is because it is an uncompensated source of risk. Barring believing in some seasonality effects, there's probably no reason why you should choose to rebalance in September versus March. So what that means is we're taking on a huge amount of risk as asset managers, as well as investors and potential dispersion in our returns and the terminal wealth we can achieve simply based upon when we rebalance. So why should managers care, people who are actually running these portfolios? Well, because if you happen to choose the wrong rebalance date, it can actually put you out of business. You and a competitor could run identical strategies and just based on when you rebalance, they could outperform and you could underperform. So it's a huge avenue of risk that risk can enter your portfolio. I think it's really important for allocators to consider because if allocators are trying to compare two managers, again, understanding how much of this timing luck impact can exist is really important for determining whether the performance difference between those managers is even statistically significant. Again, if you and I ran the same fundamental indexing portfolio, but you rebalance in September and I rebalance in March and I outperform you by 1,100 basis points in 2009, are people really going to understand that performance difference is due solely to when I rebalanced? Or are they going to think that that was skill? So that's really important to understand. I think it's also important to understand when this is something that can affect a benchmark. When we look at most of the big common benchmarks out there, they're rebalanced on an annual or semi-annual schedule, and they don't try to neutralize this timing luck impact. So if you're comparing a manager versus a benchmark, it's entirely possible that the benchmark got lucky or unlucky in that rebalance state and can dramatically skew the returns. And then for a little bit of a wonkier interpretation, this actually really matters for things like measuring factor exposures. So if you're looking at a portfolio and you're not looking at characteristics, but you're doing something like a factor regression and the factors portfolios that you create to run those regressions are not neutralized you could have a factor portfolio that rebalances in March that you're trying to analyze and your underlying factor returns rebalance at a different point. And all of a sudden, even though someone's doing a value tilt, it might not show up because those returns are going to look very different than the value factor you're using to analyze those returns just because it's rebalanced at a different date. So there's all sorts of problems that come up 
not only from a manager's perspective and investor's perspective, but really from a, an analysis perspective that this introduces a lot of potential dispersion and returns that makes analysis potentially very noisy. So since, since it's so impactful for people like managers, allocators, anybody just trying to analyze strategies on their own, this is a very important thing to have some system for approaching it. So Newfound's been writing about this topic for a long time, looking at all these specific aspects of it. But we recently had an article published in the Journal of Index Investing titled Rebalanced Timing Luck, the difference between hired and fired. So going back to that outperformance and underperformance luck, maybe for our listeners, you give a brief highlight for what the article was about and what kind of system we were able to come up with to look at timing luck for these managers, allocators, and people trying to do analysis for strategies. This article was really a culmination of a lot of research we had done. And there are really three primary goals that we wanted to achieve. The first was a lot of the research we had done, being a firm that focuses very heavily on tactical, a lot of the research we had published had been about the impact of timing luck in tactical portfolios. And a lot of the feedback we received was great, but tactical portfolios seem like a natural place for a lot of timing luck to exist. You're making these big sweeping changes. If your signals are changing rapidly and you're making large tracking error changes in your portfolio, we could see how timing luck would emerge. But it can't be that big an impact in other portfolios. So the first thing we want to do is say, well, let's use a really simple example. Let's just look at a 60-40 portfolio that's rebalanced annually. How does timing luck show up there? So start there. Second goal was to then say, okay, assuming timing luck is impactful, how do we think about trying to solve for it? So we had naturally solved for it using these overlapping portfolios or this staggered rebalancing idea. We, again, extracted that idea from how allocations to PE and VC are taken. It was also proposed by Pim and his peers at Robico in their paper. But what we wanted to prove was that it actually truly was optimal. That was the optimal solution. And then finally, one of the big questions we had was, can we try to identify the variables that impact the amount of timing luck a strategy might have embedded in it? So we can sort of, instead of having to construct all these different parallel implementations and measure this empirically, can we get some sort of guidance of if these variables are high or low, what does that mean for timing luck? And so that's ultimately what we did. We took, again, this very niche concept and wanted to expand upon it and really lay the foundation for future research. So we saw, for example, that a 60-40 in 2009 had over 700 basis points of performance dispersion based upon when you rebalanced in the year. And in other years, the dispersion was anywhere between 50 and 100 basis points. So very consistently, a meaningful amount of dispersion in returns just based upon when you rebalanced, non-mean reverting in nature. So just because you happened to outperform the other rebalance dates one year did not mean you would necessarily underperform. Completely uncompensated risk as far as we could tell there were no seasonality impacts that we could measure. So again, this was just something that was risk you were bearing throughout for no potential return. We did prove, at least we believe we proved that overlapping portfolios were the optimal solution. And we were able to identify a couple of key variables that ultimately seemed to drive 
the majority of where timing luck emerges from. So with how different a 60-40 portfolio is from something more tactical, like a momentum or a value strategy, I can imagine that these variables would have to be pretty specific to those strategies, or they would have to encapsulate the differences in them. What were the variables that you came up with to describe timing? What was really interesting in doing the research was that the variables actually ended up being the same regardless of what the strategy was. So it didn't matter whether it was a strategically allocated portfolio or an equity style index or a tactical multi-asset portfolio. There are really three main driving variables that could account for the amount of rebalance timing luck a strategy might incur. And what was really nice about these variables too is they were super intuitive. So the three variables are the turnover rate of the strategy, how frequently the strategy is rebalanced, And then this last variable that is, by technical measure, the volatility of a long-short portfolio, but really can be thought of as a measure that captures how constrained the investment process is. So again, I think there's a lot of intuition here. The first two variables may be easier to grasp. A high turnover strategy. Well, if I have a high turnover strategy and I rebalance on one date and you rebalance on another... The implication is that your portfolio, even though we're using a different process, is likely going to look different than my portfolio because of the turnover that occurs in between those dates, and therefore there's going to be dispersion. Rebalance frequency, on the other hand, works the other way, which is the more frequently we rebalance, the less likely there's going to be meaningful turnover between those rebalance dates, and therefore the less timing luck a strategy might be sensitive to. So higher turnover, more sensitivity to timing luck, higher frequency of rebalancing, lowers the sensitivity to timing luck. And then finally, that last variable, this idea of constraints comes in really in trying to capture, well, it comes out naturally from some of the derivations, but what it ultimately captures is what could I potentially be investing in? What could you potentially be investing in? And how different are those things? So I think that is almost best explained by thinking about the extremes. So let's consider a portfolio that rebalances fairly infrequently, let's call it once a year, but when it does, it makes big sweeping changes, or maybe it does it every quarter, doesn't really matter. Big sweeping changes, which makes it sound like it's at high risk of timing luck. You've got infrequent rebalancing, high turnover. If I rebalance in March and you rebalance in September, sounds like there's a big risk. But, and again, we're using sort of extremes to think about this. What if the portfolio only rotates between the S&P 500 and the Russell 1000? So yes, I might hold the S&P 500 and you might hold the Russell 1000, but those are so highly correlated that there's not likely going to be much timing luck at all. And so that last variable, how constrained the strategy is, captures that idea. Now consider an alternative case. Again, same rebalancing frequency, same turnover. But instead of the Russell 1000 and the S&P 500, the strategy can either be long the S&P 500 or short the S&P 500. So now there's the potential that I am long when you are short, and we would expect a massive amount of dispersion. So again, that last variable is saying, well, now that there's far fewer constraints, which can lead to much larger dispersion. Now, obviously, these are sort of extreme, silly examples, but 
they do help sort of set up the framework, I think, which is really important. Something more realistic might be something like a momentum strategy. You could have an implementation that's entirely unconstrained. So I could rebalance, for example, semi-annually and just pick the top 100 momentum stocks and equally weight them. Or I could rebalance semi-annually, pick the top 100 momentum stocks, but have to allocate in a way that we remain neutral from an industry weight perspective. So match the industry weights of the overall market. And so what would happen is that if we both run unconstrained versions, well, it's entirely possible that we take very meaningfully different industry bets at a given time. If you rebalance three months after I rebalance, I could end up with a very large energy bet and you could end up with a very large healthcare bet in your portfolio. But if we happen to both run constrained versions of the strategy, even if it's the same amount of turnover, same rebalance frequency as the unconstrained, the constrained version, because it eliminates that potential industry bet difference that can occur, you would expect lower potential rebalance timing luck to enter the picture. So for portfolio managers, how can we specifically reduce that timing luck? You mentioned running constraints on your strategy, but are there some general rules of thumb to think about as portfolio managers? So I think the first easiest way to think about it is you've got those three variables and you can try to change your sensitivity to those three variables. So you can, again, try to reduce portfolio turnover. You could try to increase portfolio rebalance frequency, or you could introduce constraints. But I think it's worth pointing out that that's potentially fundamentally changing the strategy itself. You're not necessarily running the same strategy anymore. You're running a different strategy with less rebalance timing luck risk. And so I don't think that's really necessarily the optimal choice to make. I think it's also worth considering that these are not necessarily independent variables. When you increase your frequency of rebalancing, for example, you potentially also increase your turnover rate because you're going to be more susceptible to noise in your signals. So you can do all sorts of things to try to control for that. But ultimately, again, I think you're changing the strategy in a fundamental way. And I think that those are the sorts of parameters that should be set based upon the type of strategy you want to run. You should think about how long, what's your formation period and what's your rebalance frequency should be intrinsic in the types of signals that you're using and building the portfolio. I think once that is all set, the real optimal way to try to solve for this is through implementing this overlapping portfolio solution or this staggered portfolio implementation as research affiliates calls it. So again, just to really simply explain that, it basically just boils down into dividing your capital up equally to different sub-portfolios. And each of those sub-portfolios is run in, in an exactly identical manner just when the rebalance occurs at a different date. So for portfolio managers, how can we specifically reduce timing luck? You mentioned having constraints on a portfolio, but are there some general rules of thumb that portfolio managers can look at for minimizing timing luck? So there are really two obvious ways to try to minimize this timing luck. The first is to try to control those three variables I spoke about. So you could reduce turnover, you could increase your rebalance frequency, or you could, as you mentioned, introduce some constraints into the portfolio. But I look at this as sort of being a fundamental change to the strategy itself. And I think it's worth pointing out that these variables are not 
necessarily independent of each other. So for example, if you rebalance more frequently, you tend to introduce more noise into your process and from your signals, and therefore you tend to increase, unintentionally increase your turnover rate. So they can be a little bit move one lever and unintentionally shift the other lever. So I think the correct answer is not to try to mess with your strategy, which I think is a fundamental change in the strategy itself, but to try to choose these variables first. The rebalance frequency should be something that comes out of the type of signals you use. The turnover rate should be something that, again, naturally falls out of the types of signals that you're using and ultimately make these choices in a way that's appropriate for the strategy you want to manage. And then once that strategy design has been established, you correct for rebalance timing luck by using this overlapping portfolio approach, which really just boils down into dividing your capital up and allocating it equally to a whole bunch of sub-strategies that are managed identically, but rebalanced at a different point in time. So again, going back to that fundamental indexing example we're using, instead of rebalancing once a year, you might take your capital and divide it into four. And each quarter of your capital would be in a fundamental indexing portfolio, but each of those portfolios would rebalance at a different point in the year. So one might rebalance in March, one in June, one in September, and one in December. And you would end up, therefore, smoothing out your rebalance schedule. And so since only a quarter of the portfolio would be rebalanced at a time, it's actually really similar in concept to just sort of dollar cost averaging your portfolio changes over time. So in that example, you took an annual portfolio and you divide it into four and rebalance quarterly. But why can't we do something like six times a year, or eight times or 12 or in the extreme? Why not every day, 252 times per year? So I think there's really two important points to acknowledge here. The first is that for the op overlapping portfolio solution to be optimal, we need the overlapping portfolios to be equally spaced apart. Using something like eight overlapping portfolios would just be a little bit strange to implement operationally because you need to divide the year into eights. I'm not saying you can't do it. It just makes it a little weirder if you have an annual rebalance. The second really important point, and this is a, it was something we derived when doing all of our analysis was that the amount of rebalance timing luck that remains after you implement a set of overlapping portfolios is one over the number of overlapping portfolios you use. So for example, if you use just two overlapping portfolios, you effectively have cut your rebalance timing luck in half. If you use three overlapping portfolios, well, now only one third of your rebalance timing luck remains. If you use four, only 25% of that rebalance timing luck remains. So you can see that the benefit, the marginal benefit from adding more overlapping portfolios decreases pretty rapidly. Once you get to 12 overlapping portfolios, for example, only one twelfth of the original timing luck actually remains. And so the ultimate balance here becomes what are the operational costs, the trading costs of actually implementing all these overlapping portfolios? versus the actual sensitivity a strategy has to timing luck. If you have a strategy that has very little sensitivity to timing luck, you know, you're talking about maybe just a very passive index that is rebalanced annually to include a couple of additions and deletions, implementing a daily rebalance schedule might be massively overly burdensome for what is going to be a reduction of something that might just be 10 basis points to one basis point. Might not be worth it. On the other hand, 
a strategy that might have a ton of sensitivity to timing luck, highly tactical portfolios or something like an unconstrained momentum portfolio, it might make a lot of sense to use a lot more overlapping portfolios to get that rebalanced timing luck down into a more tolerable range. So since you mentioned some concrete numbers there, let's talk about magnitude for a moment. One of the recent commentaries that you wrote was a a note entitled The Dumb Timing Luck of Smart Beta, where you empirically calculated how much timing luck existed in several quantitative equity strategies. What were your findings there? Yeah, so again, our goal here was to simply try to slice and dice this rebalance timing luck concept with different examples. We had looked at a lot of stuff over time in the tactical space. We had looked at the strategic space. We had done a case study with a value portfolio. This was, we want to look at momentum, value, low vol, and quality portfolios constructed on US equities. And I think really taking a step back, the objective was to say, given these three variables, that we know we believe are the primary drivers of rebalanced timing luck, can we sort of have a hypothesis ex ante as to which of these strategies should really have the highest empirical timing luck once we measure it, construct all the potential variations and actually measure this dispersion that exists? Does a more concentrated momentum portfolio have a lot more timing luck embedded in it than a more diversified value portfolio or low vol portfolio, for example? And I think the real powerful stuff, at least for me, was so we created all sorts of hypothetical examples. We varied concentration level. We varied rebalance schedule. But to me, the real powerful stuff came towards the end where we actually tried to replicate a number of S&P 500 style indices. So very specifically, the enhanced value, momentum, low volatility, and quality indices that are published by S&P. And all four strategies hold about 100 stocks, mostly unconstrained in nature, so they don't do really any industry constraints, and with the exception of low vol rebalance semi-annually. Low vol, I believe, is quarterly. And what this ultimately put through our analysis was that we found timing luck, at the magnitude of that for something like enhanced value to be 2.5%. For momentum, it was 4.5%. Low vol, because it just by nature tends to be more constrained in the securities it's choosing, it was also rebalanced more frequently, was only about 75 bips of timing luck in magnitude. And quality was actually surprising. It was higher. It was around 200 basis points. But I think it's worth taking a step back and like, those are just numbers. What do those actually mean? Because again, this isn't portfolio volatility. This isn't if you get rid of timing luck, portfolio vol drops by 200 basis points. These are numbers about the potential dispersion and return from hypothetical parallel world implementations of had you implemented on a different date. So the way we actually measured these numbers was we created all those parallel examples and then created a timing luck neutral benchmark by using that overlapping portfolio solution. And we measured the dispersion against that benchmark. So that's ultimately how those numbers came up. So again, you can think of that as saying in any given year, if you happen to implement with a fixed rebalance schedule, if you don't neutralize for timing luck, how different could your returns be from a portfolio that does neutralize timing luck? And so again, with something like momentum, we saw was north of 4%. That's pretty meaningful when you say, okay, you could have, call it 800 to 900 basis points, positive or negative, around a benchmark in any given year that does neutralize timing luck. I think it's also important to consider that 
what that means for two managers that maybe if both managers don't neutralize timing luck, well, then we need to scale that number because really what we're talking about there is a long short portfolio now, one manager minus the other, and you end up scaling that number by the square root of two. So for momentum, that standard deviation of performance, a potential dispersion between, again, two managers that have an identical momentum portfolio, but simply rebalance at different points in the year, standard deviation was, I think, north of 600 basis points, which is, again, really, really, really meaningful from an evaluation perspective. So I think this just has massive implications for people who are trying to evaluate performance of different managers or evaluate different managers against benchmarks where the manager and the benchmark might be subject to this timing lock because such a meaningful amount of performance dispersion is due to this effect in different strategies. So you really see the hired and fired in these performance dispersions that you can see between two managers. And you mentioned that it can be very difficult for allocators to determine what is skill, what is luck, what is timing luck. As an allocator, how can they reduce their exposure to timing luck? So I think this is one of those cases where the industry really hasn't caught up to the solution yet. In my perfect dream world, every index would be managed in such a way, every systematic strategy would be managed in such a way that it neutralizes this timing luck effect. There are a handful of managers out there that do it. Obviously, Newfound is one of them. I mentioned research affiliates. I believe AQR also does it. O'Shaughnessy Asset Management is another one that I think takes a very similar approach in trying to neutralize this timing lock effect, but really not something addressed by the vast majority of indices that are behind most of the smart beta equity products that are popular nowadays. So the question is, given that you, unless you can really allocate to the managers who are neutralizing it, if you have to choose a product that doesn't neutralize it, what can you do? And to me, the simple answer is, well, one of the ways to neutralize it is by taking a multi-manager approach. By finding a style of investing that you like, finding a couple of implementation alternatives that rebalance at different points of the year and holding them in equal weight. And in doing so, while it's not a perfect neutralization of timing luck, because all the processes are a little different, you're sort of taking a manager of managers approach and using those different rebalance states to diversify each other. So you have to be a little bit thoughtful. And again, you have to make sure you're not necessarily just including an ETF or exposure manager that you don't particularly like their process just for the rebalancing benefits or the reduction or rebalance timing luck potential benefits. But I do think if you can find a handful of different, say, value ETFs or momentum ETFs that you do like their processes, and they do happen to rebalance at different dates, I think there's a tremendous amount of value add in in being able to combine them and eliminate a lot of that potential timing luck dispersion. So we've covered managers and we've covered allocators. You mentioned earlier that people who are doing factor analysis on strategies can also be exposed to some timing luck risk when they do that analysis. Do you have any recommendations for how people can make that a little less risky in determining factor exposure for strategies? I think this is one of those cases where this is harder without explicitly neutralized academic factor definitions. It's going to be hard to circumvent this. One of the answers can be, well, just vary your definitions. But again, if you take a value factor definition that might use price to book, another one that might use a composite set, 
of signals, another one that uses enterprise value to EBITDA, even if they rebalance at different points, those different value measures themselves are going to create a huge dispersion in, in how much value factor exposure a strategy might be identified as having. So I think the honestly, the best thing we can do here is just recognize the risk and maybe not read too deeply into the precision of the output of a factor regression. Recognize that just because something says 0.6 doesn't mean there isn't a huge shroud of probability distribution around that number. There's a large degree of uncertainty, and that uncertainty is not only due to how the factor is defined, but again, how that factor portfolio is constructed and when it's rebalanced. And all of that will compound to almost ensure that whatever regression result you get is likely not the right answer, but might be directionally correct. With how these strategies rebalance in the overlapping portfolio method, where you take a strategy and rebalance it at different points in time during the year, say quarterly or weekly or even daily in the extreme, what would you say about seasonality effects or turn of the month effects? How does this play into that aspect? This is a question I receive a lot because the idea here is there's certainly some documented seasonality, maybe some benefits of rebalancing certain strategies towards the end of the year, certainly outright seasonality strategies themselves that seem to have some impact evidence that rebalancing towards the end of a month might provide a bit of an edge. In my analysis, when I compare the different parallel implementations, I have not found that evidence to be the case. What I have found is when you implement these different strategies on different rebalance dates, there does not seem to be any particular implementation that is structurally advantageous. One implementation might outperform another, but it tends to be from a random shock. That one-off rebalance timing luck impact and not something that's actually exploitable by actually leaning into that implementation. We can sort of analyze that through all sorts of statistical tests. Very simple one just being sort of a block bootstrap type distribution. Compare two distributions of these two implementations and see if there's a meaningful shift in the mean. And almost in none of the implementations, uh, or actually none of the ones that I've evaluated, was that the case. So I haven't been able to find any evidence that these turn of month effects or seasonality are really worth leaning into. But even if I'm wrong, let's assume I'm wrong. And these actually are not only well-documented effects, but they're effects that we can exploit in the market. I think then it's a trade-off decision. If there is a slight edge in some sort of seasonality implementation, then what we need to recognize is we can almost think of it like a sharp ratio. That edge is the expected return from implementing on that specific date. And then we can think of rebalanced timing luck as that volatility. And so what we would find for a lot of these documented edges is that, especially in the seasonality space, is that it's just a very small sharp ratio. And you're taking on a tremendous amount of potential risk for what is a pretty small edge as it's been documented. So for me, I don't, I don't think it's one worth pursuing to really focus on those consistency of returns. But for other people, they might pursue it. And it doesn't mean you have to go all in or all out if you find that there's one particular month of the year that's better for your strategy to rebalance. You might just use the other months as well, but overweight that one particular month. Or if rebalancing at the end of the month, you think there's some benefit there. It doesn't mean you can't also rebalance 
third week, second week, and first week of the month, you can just overweight that end of month rebalance and how much capital you've allocated there. So it's not necessarily an either or decision. Certainly there are shades of gray that you can make work in your portfolio. So it really goes back to having a good understanding of the value add of each component of the process. And I think that going through this timing luck and hearing you talk about it more, it's good to have an understanding of the magnitude so that you can incorporate that into your overall portfolio and strategy construction for how you're trying to capitalize on the risk premium that you're trying to harvest and balancing that with the risk that you're undertaking that you might not be compensated for, like timing luck. So to wrap up here, what could our listeners expect from you or from Newfound in regards to timing luck over the next couple months or years? You've been very prolific over the past six years with writing about this, examining it from every angle. What are some research topics you have on your horizon? Yeah, so I still think there's some interesting angles to explore this from. So I would expect that a lot of the work we just did on smart betas, we're going to try to clean up and hopefully get published in a journal. I think we can take some of the research notes we've written and really make them a lot more accessible in terms of what the content is. I also think the next, at least obvious avenue for me, one we haven't looked at, is the impact on these long, short academic factor portfolios. So take something as simple as the Fama French HML, high minus low value factor. Well, they are rebalancing once a year on price to book. It would certainly be very interesting to me to try to construct that portfolio, but just change when in the year they're rebalancing and see how that has impacted the actual price to book performance. And obviously we can do a, a large number of other value factors as well. But if you look at that, we might find that the version calculated by Fama and French actually just was maybe an outsized positive performer compared to the other implementations. And actually we've been overstating the value premium for a long time because of timing lock. We might find on the other hand, we've actually been understating it. Wouldn't it be shocking if we calculated the 12 different variations and found that it was the worst performer? So I think for me, that's an interesting next avenue. And then finally, I think you can take that and start to actually publish your own factors and say, look, we're not going to argue and quibble about the right way to measure value. But if you're going to do price to book and HML, let's do a timing luck neutralized variation. You know, If you're going to do 12 minus one month momentum, let's do a timing luck neutralized variation because at the very least, then when we do our factor regressions and do our portfolio analysis, we're eliminating that avenue of noise, which I think is really important in trying to create not only consistency of returns, but create some consistency in our understanding. Well, that's all I have today. Thank you, Corey, for having me on to interview you on your own podcast. But I think that summary of timing luck was really good for our listeners. I think having it all in one place going through managers, allocators, and analysts is a, a really comprehensive summary of the research that we've done to this point. And I look forward to doing more research and doing more research with you in the future on timing luck. To our listeners, if you're interested in learning more about this concept of rebalance timing luck, you can go on our blog, flirtingwithmodels.com, or you can check out uh, you can just Google newfound rebalance timing luck and a lot of papers will come up. Alternatively, you can send us an email directly at info at thinknewfound.com.
and we'd be happy to answer your questions, hear your thoughts, or maybe see how you are implementing ways to reduce this risk of timing luck in your portfolios and strategies. So thank you very much for tuning in.